Hey there, folks. Before we start today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast, I'd just like to remind you guys that you can check out my daily sports column. It's free by going to sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. You can just check out my Twitter to find the link there. Go check out chasethomaspodcast.com. There's a link on that page. Uh, But yeah, go check it out every day. New sports story in your email inbox. Uh, Yeah, go tell a friend, share it out, send it to anyone else you think would uh, like the newsletter. But yes, every single day, go to sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. Just Google Sports Renaissance Man, Chase Thomas, whatever you're most comfortable with, go do that. Uh, If you are an Apple Podcast listener, don't forget to leave this show a five-star rating and review. Uh, It's important uh, to help the show continue to grow. And last thing, uh, very quickly, but uh, please email me at chasethomaspodcast at gmail.com to uh, get your mailbag question in or any other questions that you might have about the show, about the column, anything like that. Uh, new mailbag columns go up every Friday. Uh, if you have any questions for the weekly shows that you would like us to answer on air, whether it's John Taylor on Wednesdays, Evan Swords on Mondays, the sports reporters on Fridays, uh, make sure to get those questions in and we'll read them on the show or I'll answer your questions in the mailbag on the newsletter. So, Go do that. Uh, again, that's chasethomaspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, leave the show a five-star rating and review. Follow on Apple Podcasts if you can. Uh, I think that's it. All right. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas Podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. The Wednesday edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast rolls along as I am now joined by Arizona Sports, Jake Anderson. Jake, good afternoon. How are you doing? It's technically still morning where I am, but uh, good afternoon to you as well, Chase. That is true. When is it? uh, I guess noon is when we start saying afternoon. I don't know. And it's also weird because I don't put this up the same time I'm recording. So like when I'm saying good morning or good afternoon, it it never matches up. There's, There's no... I should really just say welcome to the pod and just avoid time of day altogether honestly and and being in arizona we have our own time zone so depending on what time of year i might Mm. be three hours behind i might be only two hours behind that is true i I, we're a weird state we do our own thing i mean hey (laughs) more power to you more power to you um we're gonna talk about the cardinals in this podcast a team that you are quite familiar with and yes love arizona sports.com it's great great resource for all my Arizona stuff that I'm that I keep track of with all my different stuff so I I appreciate all the great work going on over there but I am deeply fascinated because I am very much in on the Niners I'm in on the Rams the Rams are my Super Bowl pick this year I am in on the Seahawks to the extent that like Russell Wilson has exactly one season where he has not won at least double digit games to his name one and that was years and years ago the Cardinals are in a big year. Cliff Kingsbury, a lot riding on this year. Steve Keim, that man, I, I'm never going to doubt his longevity in the desert. Um, I'm going to assume he is going to be the general manager in Arizona 20 years from now until proven otherwise. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. Like they are in a in a really really fascinating spot. Like, are you are you optimistic? Like, where where are you at heading into training camp right now with this group? So you, you brought up a fascinating point, and that's just how good the division is. And, you know, in the last 12 years, every single team has gone to the Super Bowl in this division with the Cardinals going, you know, all the way back when they played the Steelers. And that was, you know, back with Kurt Warner 
So that's you know going back a long ways. But focusing on this year, it, it's if this wasn't the NFC West, I would be much more bullish on a double-digit win season. But the fact that you have to play the Rams, the Seahawks, and the Niners twice each. And a tough uh, schedule altogether. Like for oh, folks who have absolutely. not gone through it, like this is a brutal, Tennessee, brutal week schedule. one on the road. They the Cardinals are infamous, infamously known here in Arizona to struggle in that what we call the 10 a.m. East Coast game mm-hmm. or the 11 a.m. East Coast game. Like I said, depending on what time of year it is, but uh, it's 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 a season which you know it's the third year for you know Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray, and you we gone from five wins and now we got eight wins. Just missed out on the playoffs last year, unfortunately, and. You know, as the old stock market saying goes, you know, prior uh, success is not an indicator of future performance. Um, but going on that trend, you would hope that they at least finish over 500. You know, this is the first year with 17 games, so there's not going to be 500 teams anymore. I guess you could if you tied and went 8-8-1. Eight, eight, and one. But, you know, and I, and I shouldn't say that can't happen because Kyler Murray's first game with the Cardinals was a tie against the Lions. Um, I, I think everything just kind of has to fall in place for them in order – to have that successful season because I think they're still growing into what Cliff is trying to do and and what Kyler Murray's full potential is. But obviously they've loaded this team up with veteran talent. And I think you can kind of see that the writing's on the wall that they're kind of trying to win now. I mean, when you're when you're signing the likes of, you know, J.J. Watt, A.J. Green and, and Malcolm Butler to a one or two year deals, granted, that's because of COVID, obviously, that those guys got released. But uh you know they they not this year but next year Super Bowl 57 they're hosting the Super Bowl in Glendale and you know I think they're trying to do what the Tampa Bay Bucks just did last this past season yeah I I'm curious because like Kyler down the stretch he got like things got really complicated for the Cardinals down the stretch last year and he's got to evolve like I'm a big Kyler guy but like and you brought up a good point about just the NFC West as a whole because like sometimes divisions cloud how we just view the, the lens we view with certain teams. And I think the Cardinals are going to be the prime example of this. We're like, if they were in the AFC South, like this group, I would say is the favorite to, to win the AFC South this year. I would say that they would be the best team and they could host a playoff game if they were in the AFC South. Um, but they're in the NFC West. And I am concerned about a lot of different areas of this team. But like, when you think about the growth for Kyler in year three here, um, what are you looking for? for him to improve on and to get over that he was struggling with late last year so I think what we saw last year is he got a little nicked up and his legs became a little more non-existent and that weapon of his elusivity as a runner kind of went away but I think that was also more of a of an effect of the fact that they didn't have a run game and they had defenses kind of figuring them out we've We've already heard in, in multiple press conferences from likes of Chase Edmonds, who looks to be the starting running back, or at least one of the running backs, along with James Conner, that or Jonathan the Cardinals Ward. Have... Exactly. I mean, we we uh, it's funny because Chase Edmonds was saying he doesn't like the tag RB one, mm-hmm. um, and and Cliff Kingsbury was saying that you know Chase Edmonds is probably the scat back and more of his kind of running back, and then James Conner is going to be more of the you know goal line back heavy. Uh, package set guy um but to go back to that I, I think it's he uh chase edmonds was saying that the cardinals looked to be kind of figured out from the defensive coordinators for their first reads and you know when, when they take away your primary weapon like a like a new england patriots that the cardinals lost to the patriots and what do the patriots do best is they take away what you do best and make you beat them with your secondary options and so 
I think you have to see the evolution of Cliff Kingsbury's offense and Kyler Murray as a NFL quarterback going into their third years in the NFL both together and if you can adapt and make those adjustments because that's the biggest difference from the college to the NFL game is in-game adjustments throughout the game throughout halftime and can you answer when you aren't able to do what you do best can you come back with a counter punch and I, and I think offensively uh, that is something that the Cardinals are going to have to to get down and and I, I think just the offensive line getting Rodney Hudson to me is big when you get a veteran center you know I, I personally was a big fan of Mason Cole but when you get a guy like Rodney Hudson who can help other guys on the offensive line with his experience um, protect Kyler Murray and and make his legs that second option you, you know you don't want your quarterback to be uh, the first option as a runner. I mean, we've seen the success Lamar Jackson has had in the regular season, but obviously it's it's kind of failed him in the postseason. And so if the Cardinals can can get that air raid offense going, I mean, they, they have the weapons, obviously. I mean, we don't know what's happening with Larry Fitzgerald right now, um, but obviously DeAndre Hopkins, A.J. Green, Christian Kirk, uh, Rondell Moore just got drafted. Um, Andy Isabella is a, a really really fast receiver he hasn't quite gotten going the way that they probably would have liked when they drafted him um but now you have uh, Kenyon drake's obviously gone and you have like i mentioned before the the two uh it's looking like it's going to be a split back maybe maybe uh maybe two-thirds chase edmonds one-third james connor you know we'll see what happens um but it's going to be interesting to see uh how cliff kingsbury has uh evolved in going into his third year as an nfl head coach hmm I um, do you think it's one of those situations where if they don't make the playoffs this year, Kingsbury is gone no matter what? No, I, okay. I, it, well, I think it depends on how. You know, if yeah. if they come out and they go four and thirteen, yeah, and, and clearly oh, this they're... is interesting because this is how I look at the Bears because the Bears, Nagy and Pace, it will not depend on whether or not they make the playoffs. To me, it's is Fields good early on or is he good the last four weeks? It's Fields like if they go six and eleven, but they go. They, they might be 500 or whatever down the stretch or even below 500, but Fields looks promising, like the franchise, the first franchise quarterback in for the Bears in my lifetime, then yeah. they're safe. It's just like the optics of, it's so stupid, but I do think it's like how you finish. It doesn't even matter like how bad like Andy Dalton is early on or like what they look like in September. Yeah, it, and, and it's funny. I uh, I have a friend that lives in Chicago, and and my birthday is uh, right or the same weekend as the Bears Cardinals game this year, and so I will be going to that game um, for fun as a fan for once. You know, they don't really uh, get to do that very often anymore. Uh, working working it, but um, I, I think it's more so how it happens. You know, if if the Cardinals don't make the playoffs, but they go nine and eight. You, I don't. I think firing them's a little harsh um, in terms of like, what are you going to do? You're going to have to bring in a whole new system, and everyone's going to have to relearn everything. And for the growth of a young quarterback, um, you know, look at the likes of a Sam Darnold, who is in the, with when he when he was with the Jets. You know, he's going through new coach, new coach, new coach, and now he's going to have another new coach in Carolina. And I, I don't think that's very prosperous for the growth of a young quarterback, but. If it's an absolute disaster, then maybe you have to start asking questions of, is is this the right guy? Uh, did we make the right decision here? And, and remember, the Cardinals, you know, this if that were to happen, that would be their third head coach in, what, four or five years? Um, which, 
is not good optically. It's just not good on the continuity of, of an entire football team. And, and, you know, guys that might necessarily fit the system and that you've already brought in and signed to signed to some deals. So I, I think it, if it goes well, let's say they go 10 and seven, you know, they continue climbing that, that, that five win, eight win, 10 win. I, I think that would be, uh, I think that would be a good season, but with 17 games, you know, this is the first season. We're not really sure because how many wins you need to make the playoffs, right? We've seen in years prior, 11 wins is usually the golden number. 10 wins sometimes gets you in, and then the occasional nine-win season, or we can even go back when the Seahawks won the division at 7-9. and nine. But uh, it's going to be interesting. I think I think 11 wins is kind of the minimum now with the 17-game schedule to uh, get into the playoffs. But this team, all of them, Cliff Kingsbury, every player that has stepped up to the podium so far in training camp, it, it's all about making the playoffs. That is blatantly and obviously their goal, and uh, – I, th- I think they have the talent to do it. It's just now it's going out and, uh, and executing the X's and O's. Chandler Jones, I, I, I told somebody on this podcast a couple weeks ago. I was like, "Oh, this this is over." Like the once it came out that like he, the 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 extension was not happening, I'm like, "I don't see how this works." Like I don't think he's going to play. If they're just like out an extension for him, but I also don't understand why they're not extending him. He has been one of the best pass rushers in football over the last ten years. Um, he's one of the rare former Pats to actually prove Belichick and New England wrong um, since leaving. Uh, we're getting a little bit more of that. There's this quarterback down there in Tampa who's done something. That's a <laughs> I seem to recall. But um, Chandler Jones, Son Reddick, both gone. Peterson gone. Like, I I am curious because I like Budabaker a lot. I like guys. Like, we'll see what happens with Isaiah Simmons. He wasn't as bad, I think, as people thought. I mean, he's just a hard player to figure out but jordan hicks not great but then you think about it like why is chandler jones not getting an extension and do you think he is a member of the arizona cardinals week one so i I think the reasoning behind the chandler jones move um is kind of a two-part thing you got the fact that he's coming off of an injury um he's in he's in his early 30s and you're you're looking at paying a, a top dollar for for a pass rusher that you know that back end of that contract, you might be having to shell out some money that you're not necessarily getting the the output out of a guy who two years ago had 19 sacks. Um, and in terms of, it's an interesting dynamic because in terms of if you're looking at it from a Chandler Jones perspective, he needs to play this season in order to get paid next year, unless he can is banking on his past. Because if you're another NFL team not named the Cardinals next year in free agency or even yeah let's see next year in free agency you're looking at a guy who didn't play this season in this hypothetical and he got hurt the season before who's going to take the chance on on that I mean I'm sure someone will but in terms of Chandler Jones you know quote-unquote betting on himself you know I mean I guess the Cardinals could franchise him if they really wanted to but again you're just you're just paying a guy uh again it's it's all going to come down to what he does this season um I don't know. He had, he had a tweet. I think it was yesterday or two days ago. Um, he said that you know Ian Rappaport you know didn't know didn't know uh, ish about his situation, and then he tweeted again to screenshot it because he was going to delete it. So whatever subliminal message that meant. Um, but I mean, it, it's 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 an interesting dynamic. He's he's at camp. Um, he he's working out you know with the team. Um, I hope that he's on the team. I mean the the whole. Uh, excitement of signing J.J. Watt was the whole, okay, there's Chandler Jones. You got uh, J.J. Watt, 
And then you have Marcus Golden as well. That is three dynamic pass rushers and Dennis Gardeck as well is a, is a smaller name. But in Arizona, everyone's starting to get to know who he is. So uh, advanced Joseph's scheme and getting after the quarterback is very important because, in my opinion, the weakest part of the Cardinals is probably their cornerback situation. Um, they uh, kind of assessed it uh, in the draft, but it was in the back end of the draft. So you're looking at a couple flyer guys in you know sixth and seventh rounds that – they might not even make the roster. Um, so Malcolm Butler was a big signing there, but obviously with Isaiah Simmons, who, like you said, uh, wasn't as bad. He didn't didn't really play in the beginning of last season, um, but he definitely got into the scheme and found his playmaking role uh, toward the back end of the season. It was definitely a, a factor in the defense. And then Buda Baker obviously just got paid. Um, you got to pay Kyler Murray here pretty soon too. Um, so maybe. From the financial standpoint, Steve Kime is kind of holding the brakes. And, and you know, we heard Patrick Peterson say on his podcast that Steve Kime kind of lied to him, blah, blah, blah. But I, I think Steve Kime, from the financial side of his job, is he doesn't want to pay old guys. He clearly wants to focus on the the younger guys. I mean, he made DeAndre Hopkins the highest paid receiver in the NFL, just paid Buda Baker. And, and like I said, you're going to have to pay Kyler here and, and – Sooner rather than later, probably. Yeah, I the Kyler. That's one thing at a time, right? Um, the wide receiver situation, I think, is very interesting because I think a lot of people don't really like this. Is maybe for the for the NFL NFL uh, sickos out there who are really in on this wide receiver situation because, like, there are guys like Andre Bekiel Bekiel. Okay, I'm gonna just butcher this, Bekelia um who is impressed um you got different dudes who people just like they they think about aj green they think about any isabella and isabella might not make this team right like there is all like rondale moore who is one of my favorite college players of the last five years jojo ward is insane like he catches all kinds of crazy stuff he has crazy ups and he has crazy upside um the receiver room outside of hop is incredibly fascinating christian kirk banged up a little bit still Keyshawn Johnson who knows but like when you look at this wide receiver room is it not still supremely unsettled and like there are still going to be a lot of surprises that people might not be ready for this fall in in Zona well they just signed Greg Dortch yesterday out of Wake Forest who Mm. is you know kind of the the Cliff Kingsbury prototypical you know smaller really fast slot receiver um I think that's why they brought in A.J. Green, and they've been talking about A.J. Green being a number two for the first time in his career, and, you know, he's got to stay healthy, obviously. That's something that he has struggled with forever, but if he can stay healthy, obviously the the double teams and the, and the help coverage over the top, all that stuff is in the brackets. Like, those are going to go to DeAndre Hopkins because he's a freak, but... If, if you can get a healthy A.J. Green, I, I think it, it just opens the door for the likes of, of Christian Kirk. And, and you know, for Andy Isabella, I, th- I think Rondale Moore, he, he's been impressing in camp so far. Granted, it's just training camp, but he, he's been doing well from, from what we've seen. But I think Andy Isabella has to be on the team just because I, I don't know the exact um, the exact details of his contract, but being – you know, drafted as highly as he was, I think he has guaranteed money still left on his deal. You know, so it, just from the financial standpoint, it's one of those to where like you have to have them just because you're already paying them, and you know you might as well pay that dude to be you know your fifth or sixth receiver. 
Um, yeah, Keyshawn Johnson, we have no idea. Um, but yeah, like you said, after DeAndre Hopkins, it's kind of like who's going to step up and be that number two. Um, I love Christian Kirk as a number three. I, I think I think that is that is his area where he can really excel. Um, but again, it, it it's the NFL, and injuries can happen in the blink of an eye. And um, I'm an Arizonan, and and not seeing Fitz here is is weird, right? I, I haven't seen is that this done. Since. Like, are you just penciling him out? I mean, most of us here have. I mean, this is the first time we have gotten past. I think it was the first time we ever got to April mm. with Fitz not saying he was going to come back or that he is coming back. Um, and he just he's doing this. He's doing a new show with Tom Brady. It looks like, and um, I I don't know. It, it it's funny because you you look at like JJ Watt has a has a hamstring injury, but the way he was going about it in his press conference i mean he's a, you know he's a charismatic dude and he's he's always joking around and stuff but i, I think it's it's one of those that just veterans day off and and you're 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 jj Watt. you're going into your 11th year you're what three-time defense player of the year uh you don't want to go through the grind of a training camp um mm. especially in arizona They're, they do it inside here in glendale so it's not a billion degrees like it is in in other places but it's training camp nonetheless, and when you're an 11 year vet and you're you know the high status that he is, I'm I'm sure he had some promises and and uh, Cliff Kingsbury is kind of this new school era of coach, right? And given uh, given veterans some days off. I mean, AJ Green did not practice today. Um, you know, quote unquote, he's dealing with a minor thing, is what Cliff Kingsbury said. Um, and he's he not really old. It, it, exactly. I mean, it's. It's uh, it's just giving the vets the days off. They don't have to necessarily go through the grind. Because back to what I was saying about JJ Watt, he kept reiterating in his presser, you know, week one, week one, September twelfth, September twelfth, which is you know in in Tennessee. Um, so I think they're just focused on getting the younger guys reps and the older guys that know how to play this game already. Just know what they need to do, X's and O's, make sure they're staying in shape. Because e- even though JJ Watt may not be practicing every single day, the the newer defensive linemen uh, are, are even talking like a, about how he's already outlifting everybody and he's in his 30s, you know. And and I've, and I've heard many guys say, hey, like I played this game when I was 32, 33, and it's not the same as when you are 23, 24. You know, your body after 10 years in the NFL, especially with the injuries he's had, you know, I, I, I think it's just one of those things. Okay. Well, we'll end on this question. What is What is your expectation? going into this year what do you think record wise and um job wise for everybody do you think the group makes it through this year going back to next year and uh yeah what what do you think what is the number for them so i'll answer this in a in a two-part way um personally i i think that you know everything is barring on on talent or excuse me on injuries uh, Mm -hmm. because they have the talent uh so let's say everyone stays healthy I would say maybe 10 or 11 wins and they get into the playoffs as a wild card team. Um, but with that success, we've heard Vance Joseph say multiple times that he wants to be a head coach again. And, you know, usually when you have a successful seasons or a successful season, you see the opposite of your head coach's coordinator get hired as a head coach. So we could potentially see the defensive coordinator leaving after this year if the defense has a successful year. Um I honestly, I would be shocked if if you saw any firings, um, unless the season is just catastrophic. 
Um, but the only way I really see that season going that far south is if Kyler goes down. I mean, I mean, I really, I really don't see a way where the Cardinals only win maybe four or five games. It's just there's just too much talent on this roster, honestly. So if you're going to do that, then and we'll end here, Jake. Who's going down? Because if that's the case, if they win 10 or 11 games, someone's having a season from hell in the NFC West. Who is it? Is it the Niners or is it the Rams? Because I don't think it's possible Seattle. I mean, again, it's all about injuries. I mean, is Jimmy G going to stay healthy? And if Jimmy G doesn't stay healthy, you know, is, is Trey Lance the real deal in his rookie year? I mean, we, we have no idea what to expect from, from mm-hmm. him as a rookie. So we, we've seen what, what the Niners can do with Jimmy G. Um, and the Cardinals have actually had some success against them, uh, but you know they're division games, so nonetheless they they always end up being close. But if I had to pick one, ah, God, it's tough. I'm definitely not picking the Rams to be the team that would fall. It would it would either be the Niners because of injury or the Seahawks because some, something happens with Russ or you know let Russ cook doesn't happen and they go back to that run game and you know DK Metcalf gets gets pissed off again and starts talking about how they're too much of an easy college offense. One of those things. But yeah, Niners are the Seahawks. Cause I, I think the Rams, like you said earlier, they're they're for real, especially with Matt Stafford. Okay. I'm, I'm okay with it. I just, I, it always drives me nuts when talking head talks about this and they're like, Oh, they're all good. I'm like, okay, if you do the math in your schedule picks here, uh, no one's going to be bad. You can't do this. If someone's rising, who is falling? Like, who do you have going down? Because someone has to go down if the Cardinals are rising. Um, what can you check out from you this week across ArizonaSports.com? All right. Sorry, Chase. You kind of cut it out there. Say that again. Oh, what can we check out from you across ArizonaSports.com this week? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a little bit of a jack of all trades. We kind of all are at Arizona Sports. Um, I was at the Diamondbacks game last night. Uh, tonight, we got our, our Phoenix Rising, which is our soccer team here as well. Um, and then right now, we got uh, our other other guys at Cardinals. So uh, from, from me this week, you got the Diamondbacks, you got Phoenix Rising. But whenever there is Arizona Cardinals news, training camp, practice games as the season progresses, I mean, I'll be on it on Twitter for breaking news, and, and I'll definitely ha- have a follow-up story with it. All right. Well, go check that out. Keep up the great work, Jake. Thank you so much for making the time, and uh, we'll have to check back in again soon. Absolutely, Chase. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, really enjoyed it. The Wednesday edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast rolls along as I am now joined by someone who covers a team that gave an exorbitant amount of money to a rim-running five that I want to hear all about the explanation for. It's Mark. Okay, I'm going to say this really slowly. I have I said it in my head a couple times. Anguilano. Anguilano, yes. Anguilano. There you go. Uh, it's here. Mike, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I'm really glad to be uh, on the podcast. I'm looking forward to talking some Cavaliers. So I want to lead with Jared Allen because I think all of basketball Twitter likes Jared Allen. There was a lot of, a lot of discourse on the Jared Allen, DeAndre Jordan stuff last year. Um, he's good. Like Jared Allen is a good player. You saw what he did in, in a little bit in Cleveland this past year. But when you saw the contract and what you've seen from Jared Allen, the player, thus mm-hmm. far what do you what do you make of it um he's a, a a really a perfect fit for two young guards 
uh, a rim running five, like you said, uh, fits really nicely with Darius Garland, fits really nicely with Colin Sexton, even though he may not pass the ball uh, as as much as Cavs fans would like to see. He is a good fit. Um, it's kind of what they were hoping Andre Drummond would be, is a positive influence for two young guards to be a, uh, you know, a rim runner and clean some things up. The difference is that Jared Allen is a much more efficient finisher at the rim. Um, he is a smarter, more controlled player. He doesn't need to have the ball in his hands to make an impact. And, you know, that that fits the Cavaliers very, very nicely. And uh, they, they got him for a steal in trading a first. I believe it was the Milwaukee Bucks first they got for taking on Matthew Delvadova's contract. I think that was the first. And then Dante Exum. So, you know, they really didn't give up a whole lot um, for a guy who fits what they need really bad. Uh, he's a good rim protector, and obviously the Cavs' defense has been a travesty for several years. So, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, overall, he, he fits pretty much what they needed. He came at a pretty low uh, cost in the trade and um, pairs nicely with those two guards. So when you talk about those guards, though, you have yeah. to mention, like, what their future is. Like, is, like Colin Sexton was it feels like years ago now that his name was linked to moves and whether or not he was part of the long-term plans and branding aside with Sexland, like what, what do you make of his future with this team? Cause it seems like Darius Garland's locked in, but Colin is more of a question mark, right? Yeah. I mean, out of the two, he's definitely more of a question mark. He's due for an extension sooner. Um, he has displayed himself as a athletic, um, get to the rim type of score. He likes his mid-range jumpers. He doesn't take as many threes as I think the Cavs would like him to take. They'd like to see him take more. Um, but he he was the guy after LeBron left for the second time. And I think there is a little, little bit more sentimental value with Colin Sexton. They want to make that work. They don't want to punt on him. Um, but his future is, out of the two, a little bit um, more in doubt uh, just because they, they know they're going to have to pay Darius. They just paid Jared Allen, and they're going to be looking at Isaac Okoro, I mean, in, in the not-so-distant future. So um, they're trying to keep their salary uh, cap flexibility flexible um, down the line. So I, I think for right now, I mean, the Cavs have no incentive to move Colin Sexton right now. They just don't need to move him for, you know, that rumored trade that was floated around of Obi Top and Kevin Knox and, you know, two scrub picks. That's that's not that's that's not enticing to me as a Cavs fan. I don't think it's enticing to the front office. Um, so they have no incentive to move him right now. They can take their time and see how things pan out. Um, but his his future is of the two more in doubt. Uh, but we're going to learn a lot about that as the season gets going because it's it's important to remember the Cavs were very injured last year as well. You know they didn't get a whole lot of time with their preferred starting five, which was. Sexland, Okoro, Kevin Love, and and Jared Allen. They didn't get much time together. So they don't really know what they have, and they may never know what they have because Kevin Love has pretty much torpedoed any value he might have. Um, but I think they would like to see that lineup with Garland and Sexton, Okoro, Evan Mobley, um, and Jared Allen, and, and then reevaluate things and in, in how they look. But, yeah, certainly his future is more in doubt um, than Darius Garland's. Do you think Sexton – would benefit more being the first guy off the bench um you know everyone has said that huh he's 
everyone has pinned him pretty much as soon as he got into the league as a Jordan Clarkson type guy. Mm-hmm. Comes off high burst of energy, athletic, you know, catches a second unit by surprise with his speed. He is very fast. Um, yeah, I'm not going to say that he would not succeed in that role, um, assuming that you have another playmaker alongside him and some defense to hide him because he is one of the one of the worst defenders statistically in the league. But yeah, I, I think it would benefit him. And and I think that if the Cavs had gotten a chance at Jalen Green, we would have had to look at that as a possibility down the line. The problem is, is I'm not exactly sure that that's a role that Colin would be willing to accept. Um, it's a it's a buy-in thing as well. Jordan Clarkson's bought into that role. You know, a lot of six-man guys have bought into that that first off the bench. Okay, now it's my turn. Sort of role. Um, I'm not sure if he's bought into that, and I don't know if he can be bought into that. Hmm. I just I wonder because you you added Rubio, and we have to talk about Rubio in this because I think yes. it, like Garland seems like the type of guard who would who would benefit a lot playing off ball and having somebody like Rubio to make life for him a lot easier. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, um, definitely. And, you know, backup point guard was one of the areas because right now Rubio is pinned as the backup point guard, whether that changes, we're just, I'm just going to operate under the assumption he's going to be the backup. Um, he fits exactly what they needed as another guy who can come in and you could stagger the guards and, and, and have some playmaking available at mm-hmm. all times. And that's that fits super, super well. And Darius would benefit by having somebody else to play make with. And, and you know, that's kind of why Larry Nance Jr. was also effective in laps because he was another playmaker that, you know, he was a surprisingly good passer. He could facilitate some things. So it's just ha- having another playmaker with Darius does open up the possibility to have him play off ball. He shot the ball considerably better this year than his rookie year. Um, so. You know, the three-point shot hopefully is going to continue to come around this upcoming season. But, yeah, Darius definitely would benefit from another playmaker, and Rubio fits that. He fits perfectly um, for what the Cavs uh, needed heading into this offseason. Is there a path still for Garland to be a high-usage, efficient scorer in this league? Yeah, I I think that exists. Whether that's the best course of action for him, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, the Cavs have put together some an, an interesting stable of – players because Evan Mobley is also um, a, a, a pretty decent passer you know you can facilitate some things at the elbow through him in a similar way that you did with Kevin Love um, way back when and I so, so you know I think there is a path to, to him being that um, to Garland being being you know efficient and playing off the ball and being efficient in that in that way um, but but the Cavs have you know are, are trying to plug more uh, holes than they have by taking best player available and, and trying to shore up some um, deficiencies that they have defensively as well. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think that that pathway still exists for him. Um, but what they do with Colin Sexton is really going to determine the, the outlook for him. Let's talk about Evan Mobley. So you didn't All have right. the opportunity. You mentioned Jalen Green. Were you happy that Jalen Green wasn't there and that it was Mobley, or were you more uh, of a Green guy coming in? Like, what do you what do you make? Because it seems like um, most people have like Evan Mobley as like maybe the highest ceiling of the group, but of the three, perhaps the most 
terrifying because it could just maybe there's a slightly lower floor i mean i watched a lot of him at usc with his brother last year and he's just he was really good in the tournament like he is i understand what they're coming from and he's like this newer newer breed of big man where he can actually do a lot of just wing stuff right out of the gate and it's really like we talk about positionless basketball a lot but like evan mobley might be the the newest version of that um where it's just like i don't i don't know it's like the anthony davis type thing with the the point guard skills trapped in a big man's body now like mm-hmm. what do you what are you most excited about with mobley and uh would you have still preferred green if that was the option that's a great question i was more in on jalen green i think heading into the lottery mm-hmm. but i really just wanted the Cavs to get top three if you get top three, you have three high-end build-around prospects, and then there's a little bit of a dip-off. You know, Jalen Suggs was shoehorned in at fourth, and then there was just kind of a glut of the Jonathan Kumingas and Scotty Barneses of the world. So I was really going in just hoping they get top three. But if they get top three, one or two would obviously be preferred because they at least get, you know, a, a, a little bit of a puncher's chance to get a guy who I think fits them. But the the thing with the Cavs is they they just need good players on that roster. You know they they were unable to really go for fit. Um, they're not in a position to pick for best fit. They need to pick best player available because uh, I don't really know what's sticking on their roster, to be quite honest. Um, other than maybe Darius Garland and Jared Allen, you know there was Isaac Okoro being floated in Ben Simmons trades, and I don't think the Cavs actually do that. But I felt the fit of Green because the Cavs offense at times was so vanilla and didn't have a go get a bucket type of scorer other than Colin Sexton, I guess. And I thought green would fit really nicely in that mold of just a guy to go get a bucket. He's athletic. He can slither in and out of pick and rolls. He can finish pretty athletically. I thought he fit really nicely. Um, I'm fine with Evan Mobley. In fact, I'm more than fine because he's a generational type of player. He has been pinged as a wing in a seven foot body and the Cavs really needed a wing pretty badly. Uh, their perimeter defense was atrocious other than Isaac Okoro and, uh, you know, Evan Mobley slots right in and everybody's been, been, uh, pretty much on the same page with regards to him being a, a very good perimeter defender. He has very good defensive awareness around the rim, um, particularly to block shots or at least divert somebody who's diving to the rim, he fits a lot of what the Cavs needed. Maybe it's not the offensive sort of shooting aspect that they needed. They, they're one of the worst and lowest volume of three-point shooting teams in the league. He's, he's not going to solve that immediately, even though I, I think he will eventually be able to shoot threes. Maybe not in high volume, but he, he will be a threat from three and open things up. But, you know, he fits really nicely. He solves two of the biggest issues that were heading into the offseason the Cavs needed to solve, which was get more playmaking and get better perimeter defense. He solves those both. Um, and super, super young, super highly touted. Um, it, it'll be really, really exciting. The defensive prowess that they're going to have with Okoro and Mobley and Allen out there is, is just going to be really fun to watch. That's three smart, athletic guys that are going to be flying around the basketball court. So how does that work with with Love, Mobley, Nance, and Jared Allen? Stagger the four? Like, does one of those former three get moved? What is is the future like there? 
Larry Nance turn his attention to just being a Twitter quote star? Like, what, is, what do you think? Well, he is pretty good at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not going to take that away from him. Um, I, I think you should look to keep Larry Nance. I think he's not only, you know, a very solid player and for Ohio was uh, the linchpin to, to a very decent Cavaliers defense early on last season. Um, Kevin Love is really just the black cloud hanging over the team right now between his contract and his attitude and his inability to stay healthy. It's just a huge burden right now. So a buyout would be ideal. Um, it hurts the shooting for sure. It hurts a little bit of the playmaking. He's a pretty good passer, um, but they need to move on. Um, both parties, both sides need to move on. So a buyout would probably be the first thing I would explore before I trade anybody or move on from anybody. I also don't think that Evan Mobley is going to be starting day one uh, of the regular season. Very few rookies are going to, um, especially, you know, where there's a positional glut for where they're drafted, which is what the Cavs have. So I think for the time being, they're, they're going to be really rotating a lot of people in and out if, if Love's able to play. I mean, the Cavs can try to sell him on 18 minutes a night and see if that boosts his trade value by getting him more fresh. That's a possibility. I really think he's torpedoed all his value, and um, USA men's basketball also torpedoed it pretty bad. Um, so it's going to be dicey to try and move him for anything, but a buyout is probably the first thing I would look into. Um, you know, if Kemba Walker and Blake Griffin can have their contracts bought out, yeah, they had a little bit more, maybe considerably more value at the time of the buyout, but no contract is immovable. Um, so that's probably where I'd look to go first if I'm the Cavs to try to free up some of that positional glut and overlap. The last thing I wanted to pick your brain on, because it, it coming into this offseason, it seemed like one of Altman and Bickerstaff were out based on the end of last year. Like that, it looks pretty ominous coming out of Cleveland. And then both are there and Gilbert doesn't make a change and they're both back. Um, Altman's a different story. And I think I, I look at these and I'm like, I don't outside of Sexton. Like I liked Garland. I like this Mobley pick. I like a Coro. I like trading for Jared Allen. Like I like all these, like he really hasn't done anything that really, I'm like, oh, what 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 are the Cavs doing there? He's not going full RC Buford, which is not a thing I would say in 2021. Uh, if he told 2016 Chase that, just be roasting RC and Pop, uh, right? But that's that's where we are. Uh, shout out to Doug McDermott and Zach Collins getting paid. Um, yeah. Bigger staff though has lost everywhere he's been, and you look at it and you're like, I, a lot of it's bad situations and who he's replacing and where they were at, and there's context needed in all of these, but like. I I don't know like what to what to put on Bickerstaff and what's not like from your perspective watching all these games is JB Bickerstaff is there something situationally is there something with the way he connects with players like how would you how would you frame where he's at and do you think that there is something to the just being like I mean the Lloyd Pierce to Nate McMillan thing where it's for whatever reason it's just not working. And then you hire a veteran to bring in with this young core. And then suddenly they, they make a leap. Is that inching closer to where Cleveland's at? Or do you think JB can still be the guy because you've seen X? Well, you were definitely right with, uh, he was thrust into a pretty poor situation. John Beeline was a huge negative on this team. 
it seems like an eternity ago that we were discussing the whole Slugate fiasco with John Beeline. Um, you know, the players like J.B. Bickerstaff. He's a pretty likable guy. He's a I, I feel like he's, you know, he's been a, like a bridge coach everywhere he's gone, Memphis and Houston, you know, to somebody else. And I feel like that's kind of the case again. He was hired to be an NBA-ready voice for John Beeline. And he did that, and he's continuing to do that now in a head coaching capacity. Um, I don't necessarily know if we can say he's the guy. The, you know, the roster he's been given has been incredibly raw and young and been rotating in and out constantly. I would like to see a more sophisticated offense coming out because the Cavs have played a very bland offense. And, you know, part of that's the personnel. I mean, JB's not being given all-stars or anything here. He's being given very young guys who are figuring their way out in the league. Um, the lack of three-point shooting on the roster hasn't helped him develop any real offensive schemes that scare opposing teams. Um, I don't think he... I think it's too early to say if he's the guy or not. You know, this is the year. This is a year where the Cavs want to compete. They they want to get into the play-in for sure. This is year four of post-LeBron. They really have a couple good players to show forth, but they've been in the lottery every year. Um, so they would like to get into the play-in tournament or at least be in the discussion down to the wire. Uh, and in terms of Kobe Altman, you know, he was the first general manager Dan Gilbert gave an extension to. Not Chris Grant, not Danny Ferry, not David Griffin. It was Kobe Altman. And I think he's done a pretty fine job. You know, he's hoarded a bunch of second-round picks and turned those into Kevin Porter Jr. and then turned that into a pick that will never, ever convey. Um, but, you know, he's, he's made the most of a, a cupboard that was pretty barren when he took over. Not a lot of picks. The Cavs kind of went scorched earth after LeBron left and got rid of George Hill and J.R. Smith and Channing Frye and, you know, several, several players uh, throughout. Actually, I think Frye was traded during the season, so maybe not Channing. But he's worked with a pretty a pretty bad roster and a coaching staff that was kind of ready to move on in Ty Lue. And, and Larry Drew hated that first year so badly he – like almost never wants to coach ever again. So he inherited a pretty poor situation. That being said, I think Kobe is on a, his seat's getting a little warm, especially if the Cavs come out really poorly. Um, Kobe's seat's going to be a little bit warm. The ownership wants to get into the playing tournament or at least be more competitive than they have been. They want to see actual progress. You know, the Cavs have not made the playoffs since the nineties other than, LeBron James on the roster. It's been a very long time. Other than LeBron, the Cavs have been pretty terrible, and uh, they want to they want to change that now. They've had some good draft fortune, you know, in getting Evan Mobley. Um, so I would say Kobe's seat's probably going to get a little warm. Um, slash, he might be dismissed if the Cavs don't don't compete for the play-in. JB, I think, might have a little bit more of a leash because he again, inherited a pretty poor situation. And now that the roster is taking a little bit more shape, now I think the expectations are going to be set a little bit more. Um, but heading into next year, you know, the, the Cavs are hoping for more. That's that's the bottom line. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, they, they should. And the plan makes it more difficult. And I think it's fair to assume with this mixture of vets and young guys that, I mean, the plan should be should be within reach i think it should be a possibility 
The East um, is bad too. You know, you've always got that variable of, you know, I, I was talking about this in a group chat earlier today, you know, outside of Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Miami, Philadelphia, who I think are locks, there's a lot of ebb and flow after that. I mean, Boston probably going to make it in, you know, the Bulls are probably going to make it in now too. Indiana's already, you know, is always hanging around, but teams at the bottom, you know, I think only Orlando for sure is a lottery lock. Mm-hmm. Uh, Everybody else, there's a there's a situation in a world in which I would say they, Detroit's a lottery lock. Detroit's pretty close. You know, I'm I'm also the host of the Palace of Pistons podcast, so I, I have mm-hmm. a little bit of leeway with Detroit. I mean, they they've made some excellent moves as well. Jeremy Grant was, I mean, if Julius Randle didn't exist, Jeremy Grant would be the most improved player. They got Kate Cunningham. They drafted super well with Sadiq Bay. But I, I agree. They're probably a lottery team as well. But they're going to be feisty. They're going to win a lot of games in January, February, where everyone's tired and bored and it's dark out at 4 o'clock on the East Coast. And they're, they're going to be scrappy. But Detroit probably as well. And then after that, you know, Washington made the playoffs. I mean, Charlotte made the play in. There, there's a lot of wiggle room after those like six or seven teams and it's just going to be a big glut interesting well what can we check out from you across uh across the different platforms past pistons fear the sword what can we what can we check out from you this week yeah. so i am uh for all my calves coverage i do write for sb nation's fear the sword uh right now we're prepping up for summer league we're going to have uh um, one of our guys out there for summer league. So lots to, uh, to take in. I believe Isaac Coro and Evan Mobley are both going to be there. Mobley will probably play all of it. I would be surprised if Isaac, if Isaac Okoro played all of summer league. Um, so you can check me out on fear of the sword. Um, I also the host of the palace of Pistons podcast and one of the editors over there. So please check out palace of Pistons as well for all of the Detroit Pistons coverage. I just got the rust belt covered is what it comes down to. I've got Cleveland and I've got, um, Detroit, and you can follow me on Twitter um, at AnguilanoM22. Um, I'll be trying to keep up with summer league as it comes down. I'm in the middle of moving right now, so it's gonna it's kind of hectic at the moment. But um, yeah, um, I got two of the five in the Central Division covered. There you go. There you go. A lot of great basketball there too. Like just nothing yeah. but happiness and good basketball and wins in those two. Um, well, thank you so much, Mark. This was great. I appreciate the time. Uh, we'll have to do this again soon. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on, man. All right. Hello, and welcome back to a Wednesday afternoon edition of the Chase Notes Podcast. It is Wednesday afternoon, so that means we are talking Major League Baseball with my good friend, John Taylor of Fangraphs.com, a very good baseball website that you should subscribe to if you have not already. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. No birds perched up on the on the, the bird feeder feeder is the word feeder um it's been a good week though for for bird watching because john i learned how to how to stop these squirrels from climbing up the the thing and then uh hopping on stretching their their little arms onto the bird feeder and stealing all the the bird seed do you know how i did this important so how'd, how'd you do it vaseline vaseline all up and down. You I have Vaseline a, all over the 
all over the bird all over the bird feeder not on the bird feeder itself but the little mm-hmm. the, the the it's not a hook but it's like the the hooks on top but like the little mm-hmm. stand i guess is the way to describe this deep that's just cemented into the ground but like yeah i've, I've vaseline the the lever if you will up and down and uh i watched yesterday as i was working a squirrel try and get up and, and roll and like roll down like a, a fireman that's what it looked like a fireman who was just got called in to put out a fire like that's what he looked like as he slid down i have a video i'll send it to you that sounds pretty amusing it, it's it's very amusing um because that's for the birds not for the squirrels it's for the blue jays the orioles the cardinals that all come in here um teams that we might get into on this very podcast john uh you were tweeting today about your mm-hmm. Boston Red Sox, it seems like you're you're growing more concerned about the pitching right now. About the Red Sox, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've been I've been concerned about the pitching for the Red Sox. This isn't exactly new. It's not exactly a rotation that you could have a lot of confidence in, and that was before Garrett Richards uh, couldn't figure out how to pitch. So, or at least couldn't pitch without without sticky stuff, and that also includes Martin Perez. I mean, it's just not a rotation where you really have a lot of consistency. That's why these guys were available in the first place. Nick Pavetta and Garrett Richards and Martin Perez and um, and Nate Yavaldi. These are, I mean, Yavaldi at least was, was a long-term addition. But it's probably not a good. It's not a good thing that he's the number one pitcher on that rotation right now. And and I understand that they're waiting at this point for Chris Sale to come back healthy, and they're hoping too to get something I believe out of Tanner Houck for the rest of the season in the rotation, but. Yeah, it's just not a particularly sturdy or stable pitching staff right now. And that leaves out Eduardo Rodriguez, too, who's been a, a disaster the last two months. So, yeah, I, I, I don't feel particularly great about where the Red Sox are pitching-wise at the moment. Hmm. Couldn't be me. Ian Anderson rehabbing. Waskar Yanoa at some point going to come back. No, couldn't be me, John. Couldn't be couldn't be the Atlanta Braves and their pitching staff. It's great. Everything's awesome in Atlanta at the moment. Um, hey, you guys got Jorge Soler now to hit big old home runs. Uh, ostensibly, I think that is the case. Jorge Soler and Eddie Rosario and Adam Duvall and just the gang got back together uh, in the outfield. And no more Guillermo, Guillermo Heredia in the outfield, which is it's positive, John. Mm-hmm. I did grow to really like Abraham Almonte, though. One of my favorite batters to watch because he has some of the best plate discipline that I've that I've seen from an average utility player. He he just he always works every count. I would love to see the the data on how many how many times up that uh, he actually ends up working the count to seven eight pitches every time. He's very he's a frustrating average player to get out. Yeah, there are a lot of those guys like that. I always remember Enrique Wilson, with mm-hmm. Pedro Martinez stuff. Always felt that way. Or, or I guess Frank Catalanato wasn't a bad or average player, but always that way, just fighting off pitches. Brett Gardner is is kind of was that has become that way in his second the second half of his career. Just a lot of fouling off pitches and whatnot. But see, the thing with him is he still gets out. Is he still batting like a buck seventy five? Like he's been awful this year. Uh, yeah, he's he's terrible. <laughs> he's been terrible. Yeah. Um, not good there. Um, I wanted to start though. Did you see? I I linked it in our in our show notes today. But John, did you see that Franco play uh, from his knees against Detroit? I I missed that. Okay, it's ridiculous. He's at third and guns down. I forgot who it was who's running it out for the Tigers, but it is a bonkers throw. 
by okay. a guy that I just did not know could pull something like that off. What was your that was my favorite play of the week, John. What was your favorite play that you've seen in the last week? I don't I don't know if I have one. Um I don't know. I don't know that I have one. I haven't. I haven't been able to watch a terribly huge amount of baseball in the last few days. I've been tied up with a bunch of other stuff. Um, I, I. I don't think I have one. But that. I. Like, the Franco play. I mean, any, any throw from your knees is always a good time. But yeah, I don't. I don't really know that I have one. Okay. It was just bonkers. Like I, when I go through every game, and I obviously we don't have time to watch every game, but then I'll watch the seven-minute clips of all the games from the night before, and uh-huh. that was just something. And I jotted down. I was like, was that Franco? In Baltimore, what was that? What? 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 It was. It was like a Freddie Galvez, Jose Iglesias type situation at third for him, and I just, I was, was baffled. Um, John, the trade deadline, it's coming gone. Lot of, lot of moving pieces. Um, for you, because we have not talked about the deadline, and now that you've had a couple of days to really think about it, ponder where teams are, and we get a really good, clear view of where teams have elected to spend the back half of their season um your favorite and least favorite trade who are your winners and losers what did you make of the deadline in and of itself it's a good question i mean i don't favorite trade that's a tough one um i i feel like there there were so many trades that happened it's hard just to even like remember like i guess winners and losers the easiest part i thought obviously the dodgers came out ahead anytime you can get max scherzer that's a good thing you've come out ahead uh, the Giants getting Chris Bryant, I thought, was perfect for them. Uh, I really liked what the A's did and the moves they made. Kind of just, I mean, much more of an Oakland style, just working around the margins. But I think they did some really smart working around the margins with the pieces they got, or with the players they got, rather. Um, I mostly liked what the Yankees did. I, I thought they could have done better pitching-wise than Andrew Haney. But I did like them getting Gallo and Rizzo. I thought that made a lot of sense for them. Otherwise... Um, I mean, I guess in a purely, what, what's the best way to put it? In a purely asset-oriented mindset, the Cubs did well. They got a lot of prospects for their sell-off. So did the Nationals, for that matter. Um, yeah, I mean, I think those, those are the teams that stood out to me on the winner side of things. And, and the White Sox, too, for getting Craig Kimbrell. I thought that was a, a, one of those moves that's very much oriented for the playoffs. It makes sense for them because, obviously, they're, they're going to win that division uh, very easily. So those are the trades I liked. I think deadlines I didn't like. Uh, Boston certainly I thought had a bad deadline. I didn't like Tampa's deadline beyond Nelson Cruz. I thought they didn't do enough, and I, I don't particularly understand why they didn't do more, especially and in hindsight, obviously, 2020. But now that Tyler Glasnow is gone, not just for this year, but also for the great majority of next, uh, really surprised they didn't do more. Um, I thought... Oh, I, also, I meant I forgot to mention the Blue Jays. I also like them getting Jose Barrios. I, I don't know that I, I kind of think they probably could have used some more bullpen help too. Um, but I, I liked Barrios for them, especially for next year. I didn't particularly understand uh, teams like I guess Cleveland doesn't really have a chance, but Cleveland doing nothing was strange. Uh, Seattle's deadline made no sense to me at all. I, I don't really understand all the hoopla just to get marginally better from Kendall Graveman to De- maybe not marginally somewhat better from Diego from Kendall Graveman to Diego Castillo but the, I, the part of that I don't understand is is the part and we, I know we talked about giving Kendall Graveman to the Astros I, I I don't think that really came together I think the Mariners just kind of made a bunch of a few lateral moves as opposed to just kind of one very clear move to make you better 
um, which kind of just seems to be Jerry Depoto's MO. It's just a bunch of lateral moves forever. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't like their deadline particularly. Um, I mean, I think that that one matters less because I don't think anyone really considers Seattle a serious contender. Um, but I, I, I still didn't particularly like what they did there just to just kind of shovel pieces around and piss people off at the same time. Yeah, um, otherwise... Oh, and Colorado. Colorado had an awful deadline, an inexplicable <laughs> deadline. But that's... I mean, that the... the the thing about the Rockies there is like, what would you expect? What is there to expect there? Like, there's no reason to expect anything other than the Rockies having a bad deadline because they are just awful and stupid. <laughs> so I love that yeah, you so, didn't mention the Cubs at all. Well, I, the Cubs, like I said, from the pro, from the view of just pure asset management, the Cubs had a good deadline because they got a lot of prospect for guys who are not going to be there next year. You know, so on Which that on that Ted scale, Hoyer the Cubs to had because quote well, that, that was the greatest deadline. source of frustration not being able to sign any of these stars long term. But that's the thing. Like, I don't see how you call the Cubs anything other than losers. Because as I I tweeted mm. that they had a core that won a World Series was to- dominant talent wise, young, cheap. Uh, all of those guys I imagine you know were were you know they're in the primes of their careers. And I know things went south from there. It, like in terms of also just how that core performed, but post 2016, that Cubs front office just stopped trying. And you can sit here and argue like, okay, yeah, they they weren't going to get anything for those players next year. They had to make something out of them, you know. But that's the Cubs' own damn fault. That is the Cubs' own damn fault. That is that is what they get for the last five years of inaction, of limited spending, of just. And not just that, but also just the fact that the Cubs themselves just seem over the last five years to have fallen pretty far behind other teams when it comes to stuff like uh, player development, scouting. Their last few drafts have been disastrously bad. Um, I, I think with the Cubs, is like I don't think you can see this deadline as anything other than an admission that they failed, that the last five years were a failure. Um, and... In in that, you know, with that in mind, then like I I don't know how you can call their deadline a a a, a good thing because it was just them admitting straight up, yeah, we screwed up, we failed. You know, we we had this core and we blew it. We won one championship, uh, when it looked to all the world like we were set up to win, you know, three or more. And I know that you know that that's not a guarantee that that was going to happen. Things things happen, but I think this is it would have been one thing if immediately after that championship. Chris Bryant blows out his knee or something, or or, or Javi Baez uh, suddenly loses the ability to hit. Well, he kind of did lose the ability to hit, but you, you know what I mean. If there were circumstances outside of the Cubs' control uh, that derailed their chase, that's one thing. But they derailed themselves. They closed their own window. They stopped spending. Uh, they, they made a point of just seemingly antagonizing all their players. And that's what just gets me about the Jed Hoyer stuff when he says that there was no figure they could ever come to to agree to an extension because you were probably lowballing them the entire time. I guarantee not one offer made to Chris Bryant, Javi Baez, or Anthony Rizzo within the last two or three calendar years was for anything approaching a remotely or was was nothing approaching uh, the actual value that they that they were worthy of. I'm sure they just got lowball contract offers left and right until they all finally decided. Screw this franchise. I'm done with it. I mean, you already saw that for Chris Bryant. And it's actually kind of wild to me that you saw, and I understand why you saw guys like Bryant and Rizzo getting emotional after they got trade, after they learned they'd been traded and all that. You know, they, they clearly cared about Chicago and about playing for the Cubs and about being together. 
And that's what just makes it so sad that this Cubs ownership, and I, I should blame ownership first and foremost, because this is the Ricketts family's fault first and foremost, that this group only won the one championship and that now the Cubs are going back to being, you know, the Cubs. And that's kind of the saddest thing of all. Like, what is, what is the, if you are a Cubs fan, after having watched the way the last five years played out, what is the confidence level you have that this ownership group will actually spend and create a winner again, or if they're just going to let this, if they're just going to like be satisfied with a team that gets enough people into the stands at Wrigley so that they can keep sending money to Republican political action committees. Because that's all the Ricketts have been doing for the last five years. They've been using the franchise as an ATM for their conservative Republican donations and political, uh, political causes. So what's your confidence level if you're the Cubs that even with all the prospects they brought in, that they're at, that they're ever actually going to get back to the point they were in 2016, fresh off that title with that feeling of we are the best team in baseball and with the right moves we'll stay the best team in baseball for the next five years. It's also one of those things where like, I think I was talking to Stacey about this, where it, the, the Oklahoma City is doing this a little bit where Sam Presti is trying to recreate a souped-up version of what Sam Hankey did in Philadelphia, but also just what he did previously with drafting Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, and uh, James Harden. Like, he drafted three future first ballot Hall of Famers. Um, that's pretty amazing. In short supply, like, it's just, it, to do that is insane. A lot of franchises can't even do one of those things. And they drafted three. Theo Epstein did one of the all-time best rebuild put together this championship roster situations and that we've seen in our lifetime, right? Like it was one of the best well-constructed, well-thought-out, great rebuilds, resulted in a title. Everything since has sucked, kind of like the Mavericks of 2011, but like it it was a great elite rebuild at just identifying talent, developing that talent, and then supplying that talent with vets when they needed to, when they were made, ready to make the run. To do that again is going to be significantly more difficult. It is so hard to go back-to-back and do that process. We've seen that all across sports and all across baseball where teams like the Phillies have tried to do that for years and years. We've watched the Baltimore Orioles do it. We've seen different teams try and thread this needle where it's just like, oh, yeah, we'll just rebuild, we'll tear down the Cardinals, whoever. Like, It's not that easy. It's not that easy to just trade these prospects. And now that you trade these guys for a bunch of prospects, guess what? Now you got to develop them. Now you got to hope that you have a Rizzo in there. That you now, have a now Chris you got to start all over again. Yes, and that's the thing. Like people don't understand. For as, for as smart as the Cubs were at the time, do you know how lucky it is that they got Chris Bryant when they did, mm-hmm. or that Anthony Rizzo turned into what he did thanks to their development, or that Javi Baez? Like yes, you can you can you can say the Cubs earned that because they developed those players. But Chris Bryant being available where he was in the draft was lucky. And those players being available at the times they became available were lucky. And there's no guarantee that any of the guys they picked up in any of those trades become even a tenth of that. Right. And that's what I'm saying. When you have that opportunity that the Cubs had, you can't pass it up. Because like you said, rebuilding is way more difficult now. Teams are – this isn't 2012 or 2014 or even 2015 when when the Cubs and the Astros and everyone else were doing this and able to take advantage of the fact that teams didn't value prospects the way they did – or, you know, it, it just doesn't work that way as much. And I think you've seen it, too. You've seen GMs starting more, I think, to accept that there that there kind of has to be a different way to rebuild or that a full tank really isn't. I mean, look, look at what the I mean, just to take an example of the Orioles, 
the Orioles have been in a full tank for what three seasons now at this point. Um, what what is what has gone right for them in that time? They have three guys maybe on their current major league roster they can build with going forward. They're going to lose sixty some. They're going to win sixty some games this year. This is going to be a third. Uh, maybe I mean, guess last year was different. This is going to be yet another season of just miserable results. Their best prospect is granted Adley Rutschman, who's great, but that you that, that's one guy. And yeah, you, they're great. They have Grayson Rodriguez behind that, and DL Hall and and Hurst uh, Yesen or Hurst. Kessen Kjolstad, the the kid they drafted last year. And and I forget already who they took this year with their pick. But they have the prospect system, but it's going to take a while. And it's so you need so much luck. You need guys not to get hurt and guys to develop in the proper way and everything to work out just the right way. And I understand that that's a defense for saying, well, you know, how can you say the Cubs should have been better? Everything needs to go right. It's like, well, the Cubs could have been better is the point. All, it, all they needed to do was spend a little more money in some of those uh, in the years after that championship and they probably would have, and they at least, I mean, they made the playoffs all those years. They always had an opportunity. So I, I, that's the thing that just gets me with the Cubs. I just, I don't understand. I mean, I do understand. It's the greed of the Ricketts family, but they threw away, they threw away their opportunity to, to do something really special with this, with this core and for this franchise. And I, and I really... I, I would completely understand any Cubs fan who turns their back on them from this point going forward because they, the, quite honestly, the Cubs currently do not deserve your loyalty, your fandom, your money, any of that. They've demonstrated in a very cynical fashion that your money exists for them to keep and not to use on making a team better, not to use on getting another championship, not to use on consistent contention, but just to keep and then eventually just put in the bank so that the Ricketts can give it to whichever Republican candidate emerges at the forefront of 2024, or they can spread it all around the house in 2022 to make sure that people can't vote. So good, good job Cubs fans who've been continuing to give the Ricketts money through all that time. You have indirectly supported the undermining of democracy in that pat in that pattern. Is Jerry Reinsdorf now the, the hero in Chicago? Is that what we're getting at? There are, there are no heroes in Chicago. <laughs> there are, there are only forgotten villains. The Kimbrel stuff came out of nowhere too. Like none of we've been wondering where, like, which made the most sense, like Houston or whoever. But like Oakland, no, like, well, yeah, and I, and we I think did that, not that makes, see Chicago coming for them. No, and like, who would have? Yeah. It may, it, it would have been those things where if you had said the Cubs or the White Sox are going to get Craig Kimbrel, you would have been like, did Liam Hendricks die? Yeah, and like in in retrospect, now have, having it, having been done, and I think the price was an acceptable one too in Madrigal and uh, the other. I think there were a couple other prospects in that deal, or just one other. But the main piece, obviously, was Nick Madrigal. I I mean, it makes perfect sense for the White Sox now, though, because you 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 love that idea in the postseason of we have two dominant relievers who can each pitch two innings at a time, if need be. And with all the off days, that means every single close playoff game against the White Sox. You're gonna see you're gonna see Liam Hendricks and you're gonna see Craig Kimbrell and you're gonna see the rest of that extremely good bullpen too. Mm. So I mean I really like that move for the White Sox, but like you said, I I don't think any of us saw that coming. Yeah, I don't know. There it's it's gonna be interesting with them. I'm I'm curious to see what all this does, and we've just never seen a uh, a bullpen dominance like this with. Liam and Craig, Craig Kimball. Like it's gonna be, it's gonna be really interesting to see what they are. Because I'm still pretty out on them as a playoff contender, but I mean, in terms of, I should say, uh, championship contender. But we we shall see. 
Um, you mentioned Glasnow going down for, for the Rays. Like, what else could they have done? Like, what else for you outside of Nelson Cruz? Um, what else could they have done? Because it seems like they're still going to win the AL East. Like, they're still playing I mean, with pencil it, in. I mean, it's pitching. It, it's pitching. Yeah. I think, I mean, you look, what what is the Rays' rotation right now? And I know the Rays are always the Rays, and they always do weird shit with their rotation. And it's like, oh, they don't have a normal rotation. But, but like, here, here is who the Rays have in their starting rotation right now. Who The, the guys they are throwing out as starters on a regular basis. Ryan Yarborough, Shane McClanahan, Michael Waka, Luis Patino, Josh Fleming. That's not a postseason rotation. Not under any circumstances at a postseason rotation. How how are you getting through the postseason with those five guys, plus a bullpen with names like Drew Rasmussen, Lewis Head, and DJ Johnson? This is what I don't particularly get about the Rays, at least with the, what they've done. They have... Uh, by my count, currently 15 different pitchers on the injured list. And I know you could say, okay, some of those guys are coming back. Some of those guys... Yanni Chirinos is not coming back. and or He got hurt last year, but he's not going to be back this season. Glasnow is not coming back. Nick Anderson is coming off a partially torn elbow ligament. I can't... Even if he does come back, I don't know how great you feel about that. Uh, Chaz Rowe had shoulder surgery. He's done... Co- like Cody Ritu is doing some semi-useful things to him. is gone. Uh, Jeffrey Springs has a sprain. Like... J.P. Fairrise has shoulder discomfort. Like th- there are a lot of guys here. It's like they're even if they're coming back from injuries, they're coming back from very serious injuries that should definitely impact how they perform. Like there, there is just not a lot of talent right now in this. Ra- if this Rays bullpen and rotation make both wins the division and goes far in the playoffs, that's some of the greatest work a franchise has ever done, just in terms of optimizing talent. Because there is not enough talent in this pitching staff right now. And that's what I don't particularly understand with the Rays is why you don't – it doesn't have to be – of course, they were never going to be in on Max Scherzer or Berea or – well, I mean, they easily could have been in on Berea, so they have the prospect depth to make it work. But I don't understand how, if you're the Rays, you don't at least add a couple arms of some caliber to try to make – to try to give you some some additional depth. I, I also wonder, too – if for the Rays there aren't some roster crunch issues, if they're if they're tight on their forty man and they just don't have a lot of room to add guys right now, but either way, it's 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 really strange to me that Tampa didn't do more, because I think they had a real opportunity there, especially with Boston, uh, especially with Boston doing nothing and with the Yankees as and the Yankees and Jays are obviously both good, but but you know behind them in the division, you really think this would be an opportunity for the Blue or for the Rays to kind of. Uh, create some ground but instead they're they're just going to rely on let's hope that these guys get healthy and give us enough of a boost enough of a boost but i don't know i i personally do not like that strategy especially guys coming off injury like that but we'll see the rays the rays are perpetually smarter than the rest of us or whatever so we'll have to see what the what the solution ends up being for them but i, I mean it's, it's just such a raise it's such a raise deadline for your big move to be acquiring jordan Luplo. Mm-hmm. like that's just such a raise thing to do a Rockies thing to do is to do nothing. The Rockies did nothing. And the funniest their, part of that was their best the player Rockies, quit. He was like, I need a personal day after the this Rockies, nonsense. Yeah, the, the funniest part of that was when they said, when they had their, their interim GM being like, we want to, we love Trevor Story, we want Trevor Story to be here. And Trevor Story's immediate response being, I'm very confused. I don't know what happened. I'm not playing tonight. Mm. Really a master class in player, in, in, in personnel <laughs> management right there. Just awful. Like, I, I could not play. I mean, whatever. He's going to be gone after this year, whatever. But, like, Jeremy Marquez, they didn't do anything. Like, no. And I, I, get, I don't I get even it. know who's running the Rockies right now. 
Like, who it's is their, actually running the Rockies? It's basically their head of scouting, which, okay. that I mean, which is a bad thing to, for here. You would think that's a good thing. It's like, oh, well, that guy would have a better idea on prospects. No, this guy is convinced that the Rockies scouting team, if they lose story, that the qualifying offer pick they get, that they can nail it. And that's such a dangerous decision. The time, the last opportunity you had to maximize what you could get from Trevor Story as the Colorado Rockies was the deadline, and you blew it. And not just that, but John Gray, who I, I understand yeah. they want to re- they want to try to resign. Fine, whatever. Daniel Bard, why are you still hanging on to Daniel Bard? What on earth is the point of the Rockies continuing to employ Daniel Bard when they could have traded him for anything? I, I, I it's it, it's it's a franchise. I've come to believe at this point that the Rockies are one of those franchises where until ownership changes, nothing changes, because it's really really clear that the the major obstacle in the path of the Colorado Rockies being a functional major league baseball team is the Monforts, who just do not know, just do not understand how to run a baseball team, do not know. They just they just make awful personnel decisions all the time. They are meddling. They're very clearly pretty stupid. And they just seem to have no vision for what the future of this franchise is supposed to be, which is kind of understandable because Dick Monfort has been around since the dawn of time. What does he care what the future of the Colorado Rockies looks like? Which is, of course, a very boomer mentality at this point. Who cares what the future holds for the rest of us? They're going to be dead in 15 years. So, yeah, it, it's just it's it's baffling to me. It's baffling what the what the what the Rockies did. It's, but it, it, you know what? It's not baffling because baffling would imply that I don't understand it. I get it perfectly. The Rockies are just a stupid, bad franchise. <laughs> and I think you can make an easy argument at this point that they are the worst run, dumbest franchise in the majors. Mm, I don't know. Now to, I got to think about that. To the point where the I don't, dumbest? if you're a Rockies fan, you should not be supporting this team anymore. Don't give them your money. Now you have me curious. The were who is the dumbest team? Uh, I, I, the I don't think, I don't think there's, I think, I, I think it has to be the Rockies. Hmm. Who, who is having who makes more incomprehensible decisions than the Rockies do? Um uh, I'm thinking. Uh, I'm thinking. There's Leo and Clubhouse, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Uh yeah, I mean it's either the Rockies or it's probably the Rockies or the Angels for me. I think it's the Rockies. Yeah. The Angels are just more like Artie Marino is just I I think they're just like a quiet incompetence where it's just like how are we allowing this Shohei Otani Mike Trout situation think, to just linger year yeah, over I, year yeah, but I think over the, year I think the Angels I think the Angels is the same situation where you have a meddling owner who doesn't know what he's doing right right and I think that's the thing how many how many major league teams that are struggling can you tie to an owner who just doesn't know what they're doing but who thinks that they know what they're doing because they happen to be rich. Mm-hmm. Pirates are also probably in there too. I don't know if the pirates are so much incompetent as they are just kind of ha- like feckless. They're they're just kind of hopeless because, and that that's an ownership situation where I don't think the owner so much is stupid or meddling, but he's just Bob Nutting is so cheap mm-hmm. that I don't think there's any possible path to success for the pirates aside from the most difficult narrow one possible of win while not spending money. But that's what all these GMs want. That's what Charrington wants. It's what Hoyer wants. They were part of the gang of four. In Boston. But that's the thing. That's what they want because that's what their ownership has asked of them. And I'm not, I'm I don't know what, how personally Jed Hoyer feels about the idea of spending money to build a winner. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, ideally, if it's if it's someone else's money, you would think who cares. But that's what their that's what the Ricketts want. That's what the Monforts want. That's what Bob Nutting wants. That's what Artie Moreno wants. Is they want this all to be done as cheaply as possible. 
The problem is it's really hard to build a Major League Baseball team that wins consistently for very little money. Mm-hmm. It's really, really hard now because every team is now trying to do that. Trying to do something everyone else is doing is really hard, especially if you do not have a smart front office, which it does, which the Rockies certainly don't seem to have, which the Angels seem to lack. I mean, I, I don't think much of Ben Sherrington in any capacity, so I don't really think much of the Pirates in that capacity either, though they do have a very good farm system. I mean, that, that's just kind of that's just the main issue, I feel like, with, all, with these rebuilding decisions is you're, you're trying to walk a path that everyone else has already done, and, and you're also trying to do it with no money. How are you supposed to do all of this without money? Look at what look just look at what happened to the Cubs. The Cubs did everything right and won a World Series, and then just fell apart from there because they stopped spending money. Which I guess maybe hmm. I don't know. Maybe that's the point for every owner: is you win that one World Series cheaply, and then you just live off that forever. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's the plan. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure either. I'm not sure either, John Taylor. Um, last thing, and we'll wrap up here. Mets don't reach a deal for Kamar Rocker. Medical stuff came back. Speaking of, speaking of stupid teams and stupid decisions. I mean, they're getting a compensatory pick next year. For Who that. cares? It, it's just it, it's such an unfathomable decision to me. The only reason Kumar Rocker slipped in the draft was because of medical concerns and price. Mm-hmm. You know what his price is going to be when you draft him. There is a slot agreement. You know exactly how much it's going to cost in order to get to Kumar Rocker to sign. And if you're taking him as the Mets did with the 11th pick, you know that you're doing it because he has slid, because of price, and because of those medical issues. I understand the idea. You do not want to, you don't want to draft and sign broken a, a player who's already hurt or who already has an existing injury concern that's going to impact their ability, their career going forward. That said, he's a pitcher. They all get hurt. All of them are going to get hurt. What does it matter if he gets hurt now versus five years from now? And at the end of the day, we're talking about, what, $6 million? Steve Cohen, who's worth $13 billion, can't afford just that chance? What if Rocker doesn't get hurt? What if the Mets are wrong in their medicals? What if they just passed up a poten- like an actual, like legit major league talent for $6 million? Which is the price they knew they had to pay. Why would you do that if you're the Mets? Yeah. It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. You needed Kumar Rocker more than you need that than you needed that compensatory pick next year. You needed him. He's a college arm. He will move through your system quickly. That's a guy who, if he's healthy, could probably be in your rotation in about three years. Why are you giving that up? Because he might be hurt and he might need surgery. He's going to need surgery eventually at some point anyway. He's a pitcher. They break. If you can, if you accept the idea that you have to give a pitcher money to, employ, to, to have their services, then you also accept that they're probably going to break. You have to do you, – you can't just let that happen, especially when it's like – this isn't something where Rocker just suddenly went nuts on them and said, you know, if you you have to give me twice what I've asked for, I'm going back to school. He's not even going back to school. It, it's You knew what it was going to cost to sign him, and you didn't do it for some reason. Not for some reason, for the medical reasons, but at the same time, again, he's going to get hurt somewhere down the line. Unless you think that what, that what he's facing is something like career-altering, which I don't... I mean, I kind of doubt that a 22-year-old's already at that place. And even if it is, who cares? Mm-hmm. Who honestly cares? It's $6 million or whatever it is. 
that's a reliever and not a good one either. John it, Taylor it's just, fired yeah. up this afternoon. I don't know. It's just something about the deadline as far as when you see teams just stop. Not, I guess it's isn't a deadline thing with the draft, but it's also just the unfairness that Rocker has gotten so completely screwed here because he cannot he can't I sign. Screwed. I'm a Tennessee fan. I have to experience him at Vanderbilt again for another year. He's not going back to Vanderbilt. Is he not? No, he's going to he's going to just spend the next year just staying in shape and prepping and that's where he gets screwed. Oh, I didn't even see that he wasn't going even, back. Even though he did not agree to even though he didn't agree to a contract with the Mets, no other team can sign him. Yeah. He has to wait till next year's draft to do this all over again. That stinks. It's it's completely hideously unfair to him. He just misses an entire year of his career because the Mets got cheap on him. A team owned by a man who is one of the richest people on earth got cheap on them. It's it's embarrassing. The Mets between the deadline, uh, the setback for Degrom, failing to sign Rocker, and the horrible way they played on the field this this week, this is definitely one of the lower points in, in for the Mets in the last decade. This is an embarrassing week for them, because and really, and the the thing I think that's most embarrassing is probably the the realization for a lot of Mets fans that new ownership doesn't change anything, and I really do start to wonder at what point the Mets. And I feel like if you're if I'm in charge of the Mets, I know I know what I want to do at this point, and that's get rid of Sandy Alderson. I I do wonder at what point Mets fans completely turn on him because if there's one constant with the Mets from the Wilpons through now and the mistakes they make, it's Sandy Alderson, and it really does seem like this, the, he is just not the, the the game or the times at the very least have passed him by, and, and he really it does really does seem like he should not be in charge of what or. He should not be involved in the Knicks' decision-making process. Or in the Knicks, sorry. <laughs> the Mets. That's not a good... That's Oh, dear. They're, I mean, they're basically the same thing, so... Yeah. John Taylor, we're going to have to leave it there, but uh, what can we check out from you across Fangraphs.com? Why should people subscribe if they have not already? Uh, Well, we've got our post-deadline stuff. Uh, obviously, we've got the... August is always a weird time in baseball. It's a bit of a lull, especially now that there's no trade waiver deadline anymore. But, you know, we've got plenty of our ongoing prospect stuff, especially now that, you know, we're going to have uh, Rookie League starting up with draft picks or already starting up. We're going to have Arizona Fall League stuff eventually in the next couple months. And our usual assortment of, you know, good old Fangraph stuff. So, hey, it's, come on over to Fangraphs, check out what we got. And if you like it, sign up for a subscription, $20 a year or 50 for ad-free. Help support us, help keep us doing our fun stuff. Awesome, awesome. Well, if you not have not already subscribed to Fangraphs.com today, because it's a great website and also great stuff. If you enjoy listening to John and I, you'll definitely enjoy listening to Meg and Ben on Effectively Wild. Another, another great Major League Baseball podcast. But follow John at J.A. Taylor. John, thank you as always. Good, sir. I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, dude.